0: Thank you, Sarah. Let me invite you to go back with me to Psalm 32 this morning. Psalm 32. Do you have a word for this week? If you were here last week, we began that way, just asking you if you were to attempt to describe your week in one word, what would that be? tried to give you several examples, maybe it's great, uh, hopefully a little more descriptive than that, or good, fine, okay, um, all right. Um, Maybe it was busy. Uh, We used words like overwhelmed and kind of walked through several different ways that we could describe the variety of weeks that each of us had. I ask you that again at the outset of this week, uh, kind of wondering if maybe the word for your week would be sinful. That crossed your mind last Sunday? That crossed your mind in the last 30 seconds? Uh, many times you probably go, no, can't say that that one crossed my mind. Uh, but to deny the reality that that could be a very accurate descriptor of our week would be foolish, because until we're in the Lord's presence, until we're in glory, we battle the flesh, whether as a Christian or an unbeliever, and uh, we just start to go down the list and go, hey, did I put in my best effort at work, like we talked about in Colossians 3, and we might go, well, I fell short of God's standard there. Did I tell the truth? Was I kind? Did I as a husband love my wife as Christ loved the church? (laughs) Oops, fell short there, right? That's a big standard. Did I as a wife respect and reverence my husband, even in how I thought? Did I as a child obey and honor mom and dad? And again, we could keep going on and on, but I just want to remind you, like even if we go Philippians 2 comes to mind, uh, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Again, in our family, we often say without arguing or complaining. I guarantee you I complained this past week, right? The reality is for all of us, we battle the flesh, we battle sin. And so there is a sense in which if we're honest, we come through a week and go, actually, part of my week was sinful. And yet, what I challenged you with last Sunday, even looking to the Sunday before, is that God does desire for those who are his believers, his followers, uh, who are loved by him, that part of the description they could say is, actually, my week was blessed. I'm blessed. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, incredibly hard things to go, you know what, because of what we saw in Psalm 1, I'm blessed. Today, what we come to in Psalm 32 is the recognition that we might look and say, if if I'm honest, yesterday or my week or whatever it might be was, was sinful. But to realize in light of the wonderful truth in Psalm 32 that you can also say, but I am blessed. Because Psalm 32 is a psalm that is focused on sinfulness. It may be labeled in your Bible a psalm of David. Many commentators believe that this is a psalm much like Psalm 51, David expressing the blessing that God has given in dealing with his sin, particularly his sin with Bathsheba and subsequent sin in the murder of Uriah. And we're talking about incredibly weighty things that initially, even if we go back to those chapters in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, David right out of the gate is not going, let me tell everybody about my sin. He's actively seeking to cover his sin. It's when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan that his sin is exposed and has to be dealt with. And again, I'll try to remind us of this as we work our way through the psalm this morning, this evening. Often we are much like David when it comes to sin, kind of trying to excuse it, hide it, minimize it, deal with it on our own, not suffer consequences from it. And yet there's that wonderful, simple reality of Numbers 32, 23 that our sin does find us And yet, even in the midst of that, we can go to a psalm like Psalm 32 and say, but in spite of your failures, your depravity, your sinfulness, you can be blessed. This is one of six penitential psalms in the psalms. 150 of them, six of them point to sinfulness and dealing with sinfulness. I kind of chuckle thinking about that because I'm like, These aren't exactly the kind where you come on Sunday night church and go, favorites. But the truth here is wonderful. I was thinking just a moment ago on the platform, last Sunday we sang, last Sunday night as we celebrated the Lord's table, we sang number 156 in the supplement, all my sins have been forgiven. That's the theme of this psalm. Blessed is the one whose sins have been dealt with by God. This psalm is also described as a masculine or a contemplative poem to thoughtfully consider as you worship God. And my hope, my desire for us as a church family this morning and then again tonight is to thoughtfully walk through this psalm, to consider it, to go, am I in a situation where I can echo David's truth here and go, I am blessed because God's dealt with my sin. I've sought his forgiveness. I've done what David did here. Or maybe, on the other hand, as we contemplate it, meditate on it, think it through, go, I need to go to God because I haven't. And so I'm not in a position where I'm blessed. Several years ago now, I summarized the truth in this psalm this way for us. I think it's very fitting use it again. But I would remind you that we are burdened when we cover our sin, but we are blessed when God covers our sin. That's a simple truth that we're going to see this morning. We are burdened when we cover our sin, but we are blessed when God covers our sin. You know, again, someone shared Wednesday night, one of you, uh, just a praise that they went into a restaurant, ate a meal, got up to pay, and someone said, actually, the person who just left took care of your bill. Like, wow, that's amazing. That's great. That's neat. It's just a little blessing from God in our day. But how much greater is what this psalm unpacks for us? Because this isn't a tab that you could cover. You couldn't work hard enough or long enough to deal with your sin. None of us could. But the reality that the psalmist is pointing to is, God can cover your sin if you go to Him. God can cover my sin when I go to Him. Contrary to the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1, right? Someone, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The ungodly is going to say, sin? Nah, it's no big deal. That's that's so old-fashioned. That's outdated. You think that's wrong? Or it's It's just a little, little white lie. It's okay. It doesn't matter. And seeks to minimize, to push aside, to redefine, to say, it just doesn't matter. I would just encourage us as... Predominantly believers here to go, you know what, if we'll just go to God and say, God, I fell short of your standard, I disobeyed your law, I broke your commands, I sinned, will you forgive me? That's how we experience his blessing. So we come to the text this morning, we want to begin by looking at an incredible truth. The incredible truth of his already summarized is we're blessed when God covers our sin. That's where verses one and two go. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not his iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. Verses one and two are just portraying this wonderful truth right out of the gate, saying, We are blessed when God deals with our sin. And he goes to extensive lengths as much as you can in two short verses to build that out. You'll notice with me this incredible truth first is experienced joyfully. Try to come back to that near the end of this thought, but Right out of the gate, it points us to the joy we can have when God deals with our sin because he describes this individual as blessed. We looked at this word now two weeks ago in depth, and when we looked at Psalm 1 to say the blessed person is someone who is happy, not in a momentary fleeting kind of way, not as some kind of temporary satisfaction, but in knowing I'm right with God, so even though everything else in the world might be difficult, I can rejoice, I can experience joy, because I'm blessed by him, regardless of what my circumstances look like. We have this propensity, again, to look at all the things God does, or all of our circumstances, and say, well, I'm blessed because I have this, or I'm blessed because I got to experience this, or I'm blessed because of these circumstances. And those things can very much be true. Very much be true. I don't want to minimize that at all. James 1.17 makes that clear. But... When the world is upside down, and everything seems impossibly hard, when you see your failure and do not like at all what you see, you can still be blessed by God. Because if our sins are dealt with, we're described here as blessed. We have a right relationship with him. This truth is meant to be experienced joyfully to go, all my sins have been forgiven. God's been merciful to me. One commentator looked at Psalm 1 and said, Psalm 1, in essence, is the psalm that points to the blessed person and their innocence. Here's kind of the idealistic version, if you will, of how we ought to live. Psalm 32 is the blessed psalm of repentance. Here's what it looks like when we fail. Here's what it looks like when we sin. Here's what we do when those failures stare us in the face. As we continue looking at this incredible truth, we need to see, secondly, that this truth is explained honestly, and we might even say thoroughly. There's a lot of threes in this. We'll come to kind of the full fruition of that tonight. Um, But a lot of times the psalmist is giving, like, three things to emphasize this, three things to emphasize. You look for verses 1 and 2, and it's, here's your sins, here's your transgressions, here's your iniquity. It's like, let's just keep reminding ourselves of what we are. Those things that we might, might minimize, downplay, excuse, overwrite, we're given three descriptions here of, in just two short verses. We could say this one. we look at the word transgression, we break God's law. That's the idea of this word transgression. We violate God's standards. The idea particularly behind this word is that those acts are intentional and can even be rebellious. I know I shouldn't. I know God said, but right now I don't care. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be. But recognize the flesh that you battle and I battle as well. When you know, I should submit and arrange myself under that authority at work, with government, at home. I mean, the Scripture spells all those out. It's like, if I intentionally violate God's standard, it's transgression. I break God's law. Well, we may not say it, in essence, our actions are saying, I will do what I want to do. I will do what I feel is best to do as we break God's law. He also points this general word sin. We could say that's failing God's standard. We think of that, or at least I think of that often in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We miss the mark, if you will. We fall short of the standard. School just started recently, and you know, we give tests. We give quizzes in school. Many of us are glad we don't have to regularly take those anymore, right? But you come to that time of evaluation, that time of testing, and The full standard is you get them all right. Here's a 100. You've reached the standard of an A+. You've met the mark. And some of us are like, yeah, that was a pretty rare occurrence in school. For all of us in life, when it comes to God's standard, we all always fall short apart from grace. Apart from God's intervention and God's working, we miss the mark. We we are off target, if you will. God's our creator. As such, he's our owner. He's our ruler. He has every right to tell us what to do and say, here's how you need to live. And we don't, not just in the negatives that we're to avoid, but in the positives that we're supposed to have. That is why we need a Savior from our sins take you to this text often because it's helpful for me, hopefully helpful for you, but I love Jesus teaching on this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where in Matthew 5, 19, 20, 21 in there, he says, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless you're better than the religious elites of that day who would do things as crazy as counting their steps on the Sabbath, unless you beat those guys, you stand no chance of heaven. And I'm like, ooh, Ah, but there might be some who are like, well, maybe there's a chance. And so then he spends the rest of the verses after that, from like verse 22 down through verse 47, saying, you've heard that it hath been said, let me give you a law. And he gives them an Old Testament Ten Commandments. But he elevates it every time. You've heard that it hath been said, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you. And he takes a standard higher. Like, if you've even hated your brother or you've said these words, you're guilty of breaking the law. He said you shouldn't commit adultery, but if you look at a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of that sin. And over and over he's saying, here's the law, but I'm telling you, here's a higher standard. Making the point, we don't meet God's standards. And in case we miss it, he gets to verse 48 in Matthew 5 and says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. None of us are there. We need God to deal with our sin. We can't measure up. We can't make ourselves perfect. So he says, you have transgressions. You break God's law. You have sin. You fall short of God's standard or fail God's standard. But third, we deserve God's judgment. He comes to verse 2 and says, imputeth not his iniquity. This word for iniquity is a general word for sin that looks both at the wrong deed and the consequences of that deed. We might summarize it this way. It's your guiltiness. It's my guiltiness. Here's what I did. Here's the guiltiness that's associated with what I did. And yet, as we'll get to in just a minute, he's saying, God doesn't hold that guiltiness against you. again, realize he's honestly assessing where we are, saying you break God's law, you disobey God's law, you fail God's standard, you deserve God's judgment. And yet in all of that, he's saying here's what God does and brings us to our third thought. We've said this truth is meant to be experienced joyfully. It's explained honestly, but it's expressed responsively or we might even say passively. In other words, he's not saying, so here's what you need to do. So much of what religion would say, we'd expect to say, blessed is the man who's gone to church to cover his sin. Blessed is the man who's done enough good deeds to outweigh his bad deeds. It's not what the scriptures teach. He's saying, here's how God responded to your sin. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. This is just what's happened in response to your sin. Again, as we look at this, notice first transgressions are forgiven. What a reason to rejoice. To say, yes, you broke God's law, but you are released of that. This word forgiveness means it's lifted, lightened, taken away. That which would weigh you down, would sit heavy on you, is lifted off and said, it's gone. It's taken away. Again, when we've committed offense, have you ever wronged someone? You said something, you're like, man, I so wish I hadn't said that. Why do I do that to myself? Why do I do that to others? And you're just hoping that somehow you can work through this. You, You want that offense removed. You want it taken away. That's the picture here of what God is doing when our transgressions are forgiven. I love the truth that parallels this in Psalm 130 in the midst of the Pilgrim Psalms, verse 4. If thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, who should stand? It's like if God had a scorecard, wrong, wrong, wrong. We know that's not outside the bounds of God's record keeping when we understand the judgment seat. We understand the great white throne judgment. But he says, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee. There's this lifting of burdens that thou mayest be feared, that he would be respected for who he is. This relief is given because it's lifted away. Not only are transgressions forgiven, second, sins are covered. Begins to touch the requirements of justice. We'll get that more in the third thought coming out of verse 2 but our sins need to be covered. You know, in order for something to be covered, though, it has to be dealt with. You, know, you go back to that restaurant illustration for a moment. Uh, you get up to walk out and assume somebody else has taken care of it, but they haven't. Nothing's covered. It's not dealt with. It's not taken care of. You know, we walk through the Old Testament. This is a very frequent word that gets used in the Old Testament where believer's sins were covered. They were covered. How did that happen? It happened through the Old Testament sacrifice. The Hebrew word is kofar, to go, your sins are covered because this animal gave its life for your sins. But it's awaiting full payment because, as Hebrews 10 makes so clear in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. It can't take them away. It just covers them. Saying there's there's a day coming where it needs to be dealt with, where justice has to be demands, but right now it's at least for a time covered. And so David here, as the psalmist, can look and say, it's wonderful if your sins are covered, but we looked forward back then to the day when they would be fully addressed. Thankfully, we can look back and say, they are. Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. Our iniquities were on him laid. We just recently studied Colossians, right? This is Colossians chapter 2. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took them out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Sins are atoned for. They're paid. My debt is gone. So we continue highlighting the mercy and justice of God, saying it's not simply overlooked. It's been dealt with. We're released from our wrongs. Our sins are covered. And then third... Iniquity is not imputed against us. Our guilt is not held against us. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputed not iniquity. Those deeds and all the guiltiness that goes with them do not go on our accounts. They're not reckoned to us. They're removed. They're they're canceled out because they were covered by Old Testament sacrifices and they are atoned for by Jesus Christ. These are all reasons to rejoice. To recognize the reality and gravity of our sinfulness, but then to rejoice when God addresses our sins. We've said it this way, we've seen this truth is experienced joyfully, explained honestly, expressed responsively. but fourth, this truth enables our integrity. In whose spirit then, there is no guile. End of verse two, that word for guile means deceit or duplicity. It's like, there's that's not there. Again, what wonderful truth to go inside, in spirit, not just in words, not just in deeds, but inside in our innermost being in spirit, there's no duplicity. You ever lied and tried to cover it up, and you're like, who did I tell what? Guile, duplicity, hypocrisy. Hear what he's saying, he is not saying, so that we're clear, like, You're perfect. I mean, categorically, Christ looks at you and goes, you are, my righteousness is credited to your account. So we think about it from a New Testament perspective. But it's more the idea, you acknowledged your sin. We'll see that in a minute as the psalmist does that, as David does that. You acknowledged it. You confessed it. It's been addressed. So there's no duplicity with you. There's no guile. You live with absolute integrity going, yes, that was wrong, but it's been paid for. It's been taken care of in Christ. This is one we need to grab a hold of because, again, sometimes even in our Christian mindset, we're really inclined to go sinful, weak, Pastor. What are you talking about? Really? Every thought, every word. Come on. But you know what? I did have to talk to God lots this week. My attitude stunk. I battled my thoughts. My words were unkind, and on and on we could go. And to say, but God has blessed, and he's forgiven. So there's no guile, there's no duplicity. I don't have to hide it. I mean, the right Christian testimony is not hiding all your sins. The right Christian testimony is saying, God's addressed my sin. God's addressed my sin. So this truth enables our integrity. The person in whose spirit has no guile recognizes his depravity, his need for forgiveness, and says God has taken care of it. You ever tried to cover your sin? Again, lie, disobedience, who knows what it is. We come to David's testimony secondly. We've looked at this incredible truth, but let's look secondly at an instructive testimony. The incredible truth We are blessed when God covers our sin. The instructive testimony, we're burdened when we cover our sin. And David says, let me tell you how life worked for me. I think most of us, if we're honest, know exactly what this is like. Because David says, however, in essence, when I kept silence, here's how I felt because here's what God was doing. And the descriptions are painful, they're difficult. Notice first, as we look at his instructive testimony, his choice of silence. Initially, he's trying to deny sin, wrongdoing. I'm going to keep silence on this. I'm, n- I'm not going to say anything. Keep in mind, silence is not confession. Silence is not agreeing with God. Silence does not represent a heart that wants change. I mean, poor David here, right? David sinned massively, and not only was he confronted by the prophet, not only did he suffer incredible consequences, but God through his spirit says, David, we're going to write a psalm so people for the next several thousand years can be reminded of your failure. And so often we're like, let me keep it really quiet. Again, we don't need to go around broadcasting all of our failures for the week. But realize we need to be careful of a heart that says, you know what, I'm not going to tell anybody. They might think badly of me. A, that's pride. B, that's inconsistent with the Christian recognition that we all sin. Silence is not progress. It's, It's not leading to blessing. David did not confess his sin. He could not praise. He was silent. So notice, secondly, his consequences of suffering, as we learn from his testimony, his instructive testimony. It's like, my bones waxed old, my roaring all the day long. He's saying, this impacted me physically. Bones seemed to be picturing the entirety of his body going, I hurt through all that I was going through because I was just going to keep this quiet. I'm going to pretend like this didn't happen. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summers. So we talk about the consequences of his suffering. You can notice very clearly with me in what he paints here. First, his discipline was physically experienced. And we already touched, I already mentioned the word bones, painting this picture of how his age body is aging and struggling. But he uses this phrase also, my moisture is turned into drought. It's the imagery speaking of, I'm shriveling up inside where my strength and vitality, my energy for life is gone. You ever been there where you're overwhelmed because of sinfulness, because of sinful choices, and it's like, I, I just, I, I don't have anything. I'm out. David's saying, my body hurts and I have no motivation at all. Why? Because the sin hasn't been properly dealt with. Because he kept silent. That's all it says at the beginning. Because I kept silent. I wasn't going to go to God. I just kept silent. Here's how I feel. Again, We have to keep in mind the truth of Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We have a very good God who loves us. He loves us so much that when we sin, he sends consequences and discipline into life. He does, because he cares. Our consequences may look different. It may not be our body hurts, but it might be that everything we're doing is just causing more problems, more trouble. We're leaving relational carnage in our wake. It might be every attempt we have for getting things right, for trying to make progress or success is set back. You know what, Lord, I want to be sensitive to what you're doing. Lord, if there's things that I need to make right, Lord, help me see. I don't want to keep silence about wrongdoing and sin. His discipline was physically experienced. But again, I've already touched this a little bit, but his discipline was also divinely caused. He says, God, your hand was upon me. He's not scratching his head wondering. And again, I think that's important for us because sometimes we can become very introspective and going, well, this this isn't going the way that I want. Is God judging me? When the Lord sends consequences into our lives, we know. He's a good teacher, right? We don't have to start guessing like, well, maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. The Lord will make it clear because whom he loves, he chastens. Here, David knows. He's not saying, I think, I wonder, I question. He's like, God, your hand's against me. I know it because I kept silent. As we continue looking at his testimony, we've considered his choice of silence, the consequences of suffering, but third, notice his confession of sin. His confession of sin. Three statements come out here, told you we'll have lots of threes today. First, he says, I will cause you to know. God, I'm going to cause you to know. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Now again, God's omniscient. God knows everything. Does God know David's sin? Yes, in fact, does God work with Nathan to expose David's sin? Yes, God knows. But God delights in us saying, God, I want you to know. I'm going to tell you. He already knows, but he wants us to tell him. Think about it this way. I was thinking about Genesis 3 when uh, God goes to confront Adam in the garden. Adam! Adam! Does God have to ask where Adam is or what Adam's done? No, but God wants Adam to acknowledge, to say, God, I'm just going to tell you, here's what took place, right? I mean, many times, even on a human level, when we sin against others, we go to seek forgiveness, we're acknowledging our sin, we're causing them to know, but they already know, like, what I said to you was not right, how I responded to you was not good. To say, I'm just going to tell you. And David here is an example for us that when we go to deal with our sin, we need to say, God, I'm just going to absolutely acknowledge this. I'm going to cause you to know. Secondly, David's second statement in his confession is, I will not cover it. Mine iniquity have I not hid. He's turning the corner here. Earlier he keeps silence, but now he's saying, I'm not hiding this. Again, think about it from a child's standpoint, but it's equally as true from an adult's standpoint because it's a flesh thing. Child gets in trouble, did you? No! wasn't me. And automatically, we're starting to hide. And adults just become more sophisticated in how they seek to cover their tracks, hide their sin, minimize it, excuse it, Instead of just going, you know what, I'm not going to cover this up. It was ugly. Shouldn't have been that way. It was ugly. So I'm just going to acknowledge it. Remember the wonderful truth of Proverbs 28, verse 13? This is one we all ought to memorize if we haven't. That the one who confesses his sin finds mercy, right? The one who covers his sin, what? Doesn't prosper. If we cover our sins, we don't prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes them finds mercy, shall have mercy. David here says, I'll cause you to know, I will not cover it. Third, I will confess it to God. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. This idea of confess means to publicly declare, which again makes us a little bit uncomfortable. You know what? God, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't matter if anybody else is listening, I was wrong. God, I'm acknowledging that I have disobeyed your law. But don't miss the next phrase. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That word iniquity we talked about already, the deed and its associated guiltiness. God, you canceled it out. You lifted it away. You forgave my guiltiness for my sin. The one we've rebelled against who has every right to hold us accountable because he himself is perfect, never sinning, is said here to forgive the one who comes and says, God, acknowledging my sin to you. I'm not going to cover it. I'm agreeing with you in confession. And he forgives. It's the Old Testament parallel of the New Testament truth in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness but sin messes with our thinking sin does deceive us so that it will destroy us think about what david has endured in terms of consequences incredibly hard incredibly hard and he needed to simply go to god david here saying i went to god and he did forgive. Again, it's wonderful truth that that's the way God works. God's not saying, like, we might be inclined. I'll wait and see. Let's see how tomorrow goes, and then I'll let you know my choice. Aren't you glad God doesn't operate that way? Which is why this is truth worth rejoicing in to go, blessed is the one whom God has dealt with his sin. As we conclude this morning, I think it'd be fitting for us to take a moment and talk to God. I don't know what that means for you. That could be, God, I am rejoicing in the truth of your word, knowing my sins are dealt with and you have blessed me. That's worth praising him for. That's worth thanking him for in prayer. On the other hand, maybe the spirit of God through his word pinpointed something in your life and went, that right there, you're covering you're not confessing. As such, God's not blessing. The wonderful truth is, God is faithful and just to forgive you. Why not turn to him, acknowledge your sin, and receive his forgiveness? We'll spend a couple minutes letting you pray, and then I'll close us in prayer before we sing. Word once more I'd ask that if be one here today who needs to be saved knowing the forgiveness of your sin putting their faith in Christ that you by your spirit through your word would work in their heart they would pray acknowledging their sin believing on Christ and be saved Lord, for believers here I pray that we would each experience the blessing of knowing that our sins are forgiven they've been dealt with as we've confessed and forsaken them and received the forgiveness that you give through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths and encourage hearts, cause us to rejoice that we might live for you this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Darren, would you come and lead us in a closing hymn?